0: Long-standing is Gautami, maternal aunt of the Buddha. Attained to the supreme state, may the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. As the
1: foremost in great wisdom, Kema is renowned. Disciple of the excellent Buddha, may the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
0: Upalavana Theri is the highest of those with psychic powers. Disciple of the excellent Buddha, May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
1: As the foremost among Vinaya experts, Patachara is famous. Attained to the Supreme State, may the power of her
0: qualities always be a blessing to us. As the most excellent of Dhamma teachers, Dhamma Dina is named. Attained to the Supreme State, may the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
1: Among Nuns who cultivate meditation, Nanda Terry is named. Established in the supreme state, may the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
0: As the foremost of energetic ones, Sona is named. Established in that state, may the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
1: As the foremost of those with the divine eye, Sakula is famous. With seeing well purified, may the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
0: Kundalakesi Pikuni is the most excellent of those with quick intuition. Established in this very state, may the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
1: Bada Kapilani is the foremost of those remembering previous birth. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
0: Baddha Kachanateri Te- is the greatest of those with higher knowledges. Having conquered pleasure and pain, May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us.
1: Kisa Gotami is the foremost of those wearing coarse robes. Attained to the supreme state, may the power of her
0: qualities always be a blessing to us. Sigala Mata Bhikkhuni is the highest of those resolved on faith. May the power of her qualities always bestow great peace, health and happiness on us. May these and all the other
1: qualities of the Bhikkhunis dispel all fear, sorrow, and illness. Those who are stream enterers and all others in training, endowed with faith, wisdom, and virtue, with impurities partially burned away, may the power of their qualities always be a blessing to us.
0: Third. So we'll have a half an hour meditation.
1: So this evening I wanna. So this evening I want to continue with what I was uh, speaking about in the guided meditation this afternoon about the, you know, the process of letting go, how that works. And I'm starting again with a poem, and the poem is by Nandutara Bhikkhuni. And first I read a little bit about her bio, her life. Nandutara was born in a Brahman family. She went forth as a chain, and like Bada Kundalakesa, She wandered across India in search of people who would debate religious topics with her. So she was a very skilled teacher and debater. One debate was with one of the Buddha's two chief disciples with Moggallana. He defeated her in debate and she converted to Buddhism. She became enlightened very shortly after joining the Buddhist community of nuns. She spoke her words at the time of her awakening. And I have <coughs> a few different translations and starting with uh, Charles Hallisey. So on remembering that she was a, a, a chain. And she says the following. I honored fire, the moon and sun and gods. At the fort in the river, I went down into the water. Undertaking many vows, I shaved half my head. I made a bed on the ground. I didn't enjoy food at night. Vexed as I was by the urge for sex, I would do this body a favor with baths and massages and delight in jewelry and finery. Then confident, I went forth to homelessness. Once I saw the body as it was, the urge for sex was no more. All existences existences are cut off, wants and aspirations too. Every tie untied, I have attained peace of mind." And then there's two more there. They are all kind of slightly different, so, so I, I read all three to do you and then you can choose for yourself. And that's this, this one is by Bhante Suchato, Nantuttara. In the past I worshipped the sacred flame, the moon, the sun and the gods. Having gone to a river fort, I plunged into the water. Undertaking many vows, I shaved half my head. Preparing a bed on the ground, I ate no food at night. I loved my ornaments and decorations, and with bath and oil massages, I pandered to this body, wrecked by desire for pleasures of the senses. But then I gained faith and went forth to homelessness. Truly seeing the body, desire for sensual pleasure is eradicated. All rebirths are cut off. Wishes and aspirations too, detached from all attachments. I have found peace of mind. So here she speaks about two different, you know, attempts she made to find freedom. The first two uh, stanzas are about when she, you know, was undertaking a particular religious practice by, you know, taking bath in the river worshipping the sacred flame the moon and the sun and so on and undertaking vows and then she also you know was from a upper class family and had had many you know jewelry finery and was quite uh, in love with her own beauty so she she tried both of these avenues and both didn't really work out in the way Uh, she was hoping for, so then she became a nun. And there's a further translation by Ayasoma, I used to worship fire, the moon, the sun and the devas. I would go to the river fort and walk into the water. I took on many spiritual practices, I shaved off half my head, I set my sleeping place on the ground and ate no food at night. At the same time I enjoyed jewelry and makeup, I pampered this body with bath and massages, afflicted by lust. Eventually I acquired faith and went forth into homelessness. After I accurately saw the body, I uprooted lust. All states of existence have been cut off, as well as desire and aspiration. All bonds are unbound. I have attained peace of mind. So that's you know three different versions of of you know telling us about her uh, different attempts you know to overcome a sense of dukkha and find some some uh, relief you know either in indulge- in indulging in the senses or in actually indulging in certain uh, rituals and and different prescriptions and so on, ha- hoping that this would lead to some kind of uh, fulfillment and and both of those styles haven 't worked for her she hasn 't found that freedom she had been looking for because the underlying you know deep attachments haven 't been Understood, haven't been seen for what they were, and therefore, you know, they were still operating. And it doesn't really matter, you know, if we are attaching to rites and rituals of religious kinds or if we are attaching to our own beauty and our jewelry, it's, it's still attachment, and that's the opposite of freedom. And uh, you know, and then she found the teaching which really was able to explain and to give some strategies, you know, to really get at this underlying tanha, it's called in the Pali language, and that's literally can be translated as thirst. This underlying craving which is the the root of suffering, you know, the craving for something different than what's happening right now and I'm sure you can all observe that you know in your own meditation you know always uh, thinking it's somewhere else you know afterwards or uh, when this has happened or when that has happened then then it's going to be as it should be and then you know we can live a whole life we can live countless lifetimes with that momentum you know which compels us into the future, you know, that, that uh, saying, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence or something like that. Mm-hmm. And once then you're there, then it's, then it's the next one and the next one and the next one and that's like one of the countless definitions of what samsara is. It's somewhere else. We are constantly on the on the move constantly on the go for that somewhere else, and then this momentum if if we are starting you know to slow down or even stopping, then we have to deal with that energy we deal with that um, pressure which is is the when we when we can really feel this tanha and when we are not um, you know, um, becoming it, when we are just allowing it to be what it is and not giving in, so to say, then we have to withstand like that pressure which is experienced as very unpleasant. And, uh, you know, there's a quote from the Buddha, where the Buddha kind of speaks to that tanha, thirst, craving, And he said, what, O monastics, is the origin of suffering? It is that craving which gives rise to ever-fresh rebirth and bound up with pleasure and lust, nowhere, uh, now here, now there, finds ever-fresh delight. It is the sensual craving, Kama-Tanha, the craving for existence, Bava-Tanha, and the craving for non-existence, Vipava-Tanha. So sensual craving in terms of, you know, having something to eat, something to touch, something to look at, something to listen. These kinds of craving. Then the craving for being somebody different than from what we are right now. And the craving for non-existence, Vipava Dhanha not being something. So that's the three kinds of craving. And uh, I also brought the Reimagination by Mary Weingast, which is a little bit different than the originals in this case, but it's also, I find, very instructive. Antuttara, greatest joy. I spent most of my teenage years running from one bed to another. Any sign of warmth would do. Each worked for a while until they got possessive or mean or boring or I did. Then I got new friends, shaved my head and started eating once a day. During the long lonely nights that followed I would remember all the nice warm baths all the late nights and long mornings waking up next to beautiful, warm bodies. One night, shivering on the ground, I started to cry. It's not fair. No matter what I do, the other thing always looks better. Mm -hmm. Listen, my heart. I know how exhausting it all gets. Mm -hmm. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. And what's meant here is, you know, don't give up paying attention to what's actually happening. When we are, you know, running and running and running in this way and we can't really stop because stopping is too painful, but at the same time we know there's something not quite adding up. So, I think then it's okay to keep running but really paying attention what's happening and that really can help us to slowly but surely you know, release that grip through paying attention and not, not indulging in those three kinds of thirst but also not suppressing them and that's you know, the art of this practice the, which was called the, the practice of the middle way, not suppressing and not indulging, but rather than not doing something, adding more to it, adding something to it, something different, which is called yoniso manasikara, wise attention or thorough attention. And that wise and thorough attention, you know, slowly but surely dissolves this habitual thirsting. By really looking and seeing you know it's like drinking salt water it's not it's not doing the job really it's just making it worse, actually, because it makes the habit stronger it it uh, forms you know addictions, its you know ruins our health, it ruins our relationship, it ruins our bank accounts and and many other uh, things in our lives it's not. Really giving us what we are looking for, and that we can only see through wise attention through adding something extra on top of what we are already doing, and then that opens up uh, you know the surface, and then we can see more into the depths, and then we start to see you know neither attaching to certain you know re- religious rituals, empty rituals which don't ha- are not conducive to developing inside, is useless. It might look good, you know, but it's not uh, leading to anything. In the same way as, you know, uh, you know, indulging in in extreme ascetic practices. It's not helping, really. It can be a, a distraction also, you know. It can be something to be proud about. It can be something to kind of get really obsessed about but it's not conducive to wisdom as long as we are not really looking why we are doing this what's, what's underneath you know, what is, is propelling us to you know, obsess with whatever it is even if it's a, a so called you know, um, religious practice it's, it's not really uh, bringing us the freedom we are looking for and, and the word yoni so manasikara, the word yoni uh, in the Pali language means womb, and you know, and, and it, that means you know, looking back to the origin, where does it come from? You know, where does this impulse come from? And then we can see, it, it will always lead us to this thirst, tanha, this sense of wanting something different from what's right now. And then if we are not able, you know, to really stay with that experience because it is indeed very, very unpleasant, or it can be also very, very exciting. But what we need to do is to stop and really experience the energetic presence of that. And and seeing, you know, how it is always taking us out of the present moment into somewhere else. And then if we, you know, if we can, through the through uh, wise attention, thorough attention, through the, you know, mind which has really developed these seven factors of awakening, if we can really stay with our experience and penetrate into the depths of it, it starts to open up. And, and the whole practice... Uh, you know, specifically designed methods to experience and explore how these natural forces, you know, are working through us. And they present themselves as energies in the body and they are sometimes, you know, not very easy to experience if we have not trained ourselves to to kind of uh, have the confidence and the trust that we can actually, we can actually be with that, you know. The body is, is strong enough, it can experience those things. And if we have suppressed a lot of this stuff, you know, over our lifetime, or maybe, you know, from previous lives, it, it can, there can be a lot in there, you know, which needs to be seen for what it is trauma, and all other kinds of, of, of patterns, you know, which are hard to be with. But nevertheless, that's the way, you know, how we need to work with it. It needs to be dissolved through awareness. You know, kind awareness, really. Not, you know, I'm going to look a minute in order for for it to go away that I <laughs> won't won't do it, you know. It needs to be really come from acceptance, and kindness and from the knowing, yeah, that that is the only way, you know. And at the same time, not biting more off than we can choose, so to say, you know, taking it one step at a time and, uh, you know, the most important internal faculty is this wise attention, thorough attention, and the most important external one is wise friends. So those two work together. And then, you know, we have done already uh, at least, you know, two practices. The, today we did the meditation on the body parts, for example. That's one way of looking at the body in a, in a different way than usual. You know, looking at it in terms of skin, flesh, and bones, that's a way of, normally, you know, we don't look at the body like that, or quite rarely. Maybe if you're studying medicine, you know, you're... Um, having these kinds of uh, things, you know, in your in your life, but otherwise, it it's not uh, not a common thing to look at the body in this way. And then, you know, basically, looking under the surface, and then uh, you know, this kind of meditation in the Pali language is called Asuba. Suba means beautiful, and Asuba is is uh, means not beautiful. So it shows us a, side, uh, a certain facet of the body which is showing us that which is not beautiful. So that we can balance it out with, uh, you know, looking at the body from the outside, especially of the young body, can be extremely beautiful, very, very attractive. And then looking at this, in this other way can bring balance. It's not about you know, making us believe that the body is ugly, but just showing us, you no, know, the body is, can be looked at in many different ways. And that, you know, can help to um, let go of attachment. And then um, the meditation on the elements, for example, you know, shows us that there is no real inside and outside. And, you know, we never cut the umbilical cord with the planet and there's a constant exchange happening, and that shows us uh, not-self, anatta, or emptiness, which also can help, you know, to let go of attachment. Maybe more in the sense, of, for example, if we're feeling, you know, very angry with somebody, we can look, you know, am I angry at the earth element here, or is it the fire element, or Water element. It can just help, you know, for the mind to snap out of a certain avenue of thinking and suddenly look at it in a complete different way, and that can help. And it's it's never about you know not doing something, but adding a new way of looking, which suddenly you know kind of balance out a a habitual way of looking, but just opening another window and saying, look like this. It's the same thing, but looking very differently. And then suddenly, oh, that really helps, you know, to um, see there is much more to this uh, life, you know, as a human being than what we think, or, you know, what we are conditioned into through our upbringing, our culture, the time, you know, in history we live and so on and so forth, there's so much more. And through that, you know, our experience of being a human being becomes a much deeper and wider experience and, and through the practice, you know, we are going deeper and deeper into reality and have this, um, you know, expanding perspective on everything. And that helps, you know, to take out the charge because there's much more space there. And... Um, so, you know, the body parts show us the dukkha, unsatisfactoriness of all phenomena. The elements show us the emptiness, not self-ness, can say that, of all phenomena. And, for example, You know, the third practice in the first establishment of mindfulness would be to remember our mortality. That helps us to see impermanence, anicca. So that's the three characteristics. Anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And anatta, not self or emptiness. Those three characteristics. You know, if we are familiarize ourselves with them, then normally you know, we are always glued on the stories, on the content of our experience. And through you know practicing in this way, we start to also pay attention to the structure of our experience. That you know, which repeats itself again and again and again. You know, all phenomena, whatever it is, a mountain, a car, or a plate of food is always constantly changing. That's, you know, we cannot, we can step back and see the changingness of everything. And then if we see the changingness of everything, it becomes quite clear why everything is unsatisfactory. Why we cannot permanently, you know, uh, build our identity on any of this. Because it's a constantly changing process. And then, you know, by seeing this, it's also clear, yes, it's a process, it's not a separate thing. It's empty, empty of a self. So then, you know, through the practice, we start to, we can see both. We can see the content, and we can see the structure. And through, you know, through cultivating the mind, we are more and more have more and more and quicker access to the structure, even in very, very challenging circumstances, we can remember, oh, this is impermanent. And then we are just adding something to our experience, which before we didn't see so clearly, so we always forgot it again and again. And that's the point, is, you know, in the moment when we are really kind of caught up with something, and emotions get stirred up to be able to remember that, the structure, you know, that whatever is happening, whatever it is, the best and the worst, they have something in, co- in common. They are impermanent, they are unsatisfactory, and they are empty of a self. And that, you know, might so- to some people sound negative, and and kind of uh, not very good news. (laughs) But actually, you know, if you are putting this Yoniso Manasikara into the equation, it it starts to dawn on us that this is actually um, you know, the door to great freedom. Because we start to understand you know, the constructed nature of the sense of self. That the self is not separate. And is just a whole heap of uh, thoughts and conditioning and filters you know, which we have been accumulating over lifetimes. And they have been constructed and because of that it can be deconstructed. And uh, the Buddha Dharma is a whole set of instructions how this deconstruction can uh, happen. And uh, this identification and deconstruction of these patterns, you know, which keep us imprisoned in very small lives. And... uh, You know, and in the beginning there is a certain resistance and fear because, you know, it makes us uh, recognize the vulnerability of being a human being, you know, having a body like this, being completely dependent on, on planet Earth, you know, for food and water and air and, and, and temperature and everything, being completely dependent. And, uh, but then, you know, through really giving oneself to this practice, this uh, vulnerability, which in the beginning, you know, is, is kind of a little bit shocking, to really open up to this fact, you know, that we are not separate entities, which can which we can control. But then, you know, over time, if we keep on working, if we keep on opening up, if we keep on looking, then this vulnerability starts to turn into invulnerability through awakening more and more and not resisting that, you know. And then full awakening would be, uh, you know, letting go of all craving, of all thirst, to have it different than what it is, which is the same as being invulnerable. No longer having to manipulate what's happening, being able to completely accept and open, and you know, as human beings, as 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 Homo sapiens sapiens, we can really we can do this practice. If we are be born as a you know as a turtle or as a well, some other you know animal, they have very hard shells. They are much more uh, they're much less vulnerable than we are. Their bodies. Or alligators, or some other, or mussels, or some really hard-shelled animals. They are much less vulnerable than we are, with these very, you know, sensitive bodies. And we are, we, our, when we give birth to children, they need to stay for a very long time with the parents. Not like some animals; they can get up and walk like half an hour after they come out from their mother. So we are extremely vulnerable species, but also at the same time we have this equipment, you know, this reflective mind, so that at the same time we can use our vulnerability for full awakening. And that's, you know, that special opportunity which we have, and this is why the human birth is considered to be such a fortunate one, because we can realize Awakening, and we can leave behind this thirst, you know, thirst for sensual pleasures, thirst for existence, and thirst for non-existence, through insight, not through suppression, because of supp- suppression that won't work. And, you know, like this non uh, tutara. She was fed up enough, you know, so that she then was really ready to pay attention in a way how it which was conducive to insight and then it just uh it you know, it dissolved. Because if we are looking in the right way, then this is what happens. And uh You know, because all phenomena, because they are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty of a self, this is why all phenomena have liberation as their essence. Any phenomena, you know, which we contemplate can display those three characteristics. And, you know, in her case, she first she was like, you know, attaching to religious practices that didn't work. Then she was kind of indulging in all kinds of uh, sensual pleasures that also didn't work. And then she'd run out of options and then she became a nun, we can say. And then she, you know, paid attention in the way she was uh, taught by the Buddha and then it started, all, it started to dissolve, this uh, craving. And how did that dissolve? You know, by paying attention in a particular way. And uh, in the you know in the Pali Canon, that's four meditative themes which are often you know spoken about. And you know, if you have ever practiced Anapanasati, the sixteen steps of Anapanasati, the last four steps are. These four meditative themes, which uh, you know can turn any meditation into an inside meditation, not by changing anything but by paying attention in a particular way and and the first uh, of these four steps is you know to pay attention to impermanence impermanence of the breathing process or for example, I know you had a very um, peaceful sitting and now you're paying attention to the fact that even a peaceful sitting is coming to an end. Whenever something, or like reflecting reflection on, on um, mortality, for example, this could be my last breath. So paying attention to the fact, you know, that everything is changing. And then as I said, you know, this afternoon uh, during the meditation, and then if we pay attention in this way, um, passion starts to fade away. In the Pali language that's called Viraga, washing away the clinging through paying attention to impermanence. Because if the mind really deeply sees impermanence, it lets go. Because it's futile, you know, to cling to something which is constantly changing. It just doesn't lead to anything. If the mind really sees it clearly, it answers with, you know, letting go of clinging. Sometimes a little, sometimes more, and it's not like a straightforward, quick, one-time looking kind of a thing. We have to, many, many, many times, The washing away of passion, <coughs> and the word is viraga and comes from the word ranj, which means to color. So, this coloring is you know, which makes everything look very different than what it is, is washed away, and then we start to see what's really hap- what, what it really is you know, the changingness. And how futile it is to try to grasp that, to nail it down, to fix it. But it can't be done. And then the mind, you know, which has um, you know let go of passion, or at least for a little bit, is able, you know, to see more clearly. And what the mind can then see is the ending of things. That everything which has a beginning has a middle and an end, and that's just the way it is. And that's not, you know, like uh, that nature is cheating us or anything like that. It's just that we are not seeing clearly. And we have to just, you know, adjust our expectations through a reality check. And this uh, meditation is a reality check, really. Helps us to see more clearly what's really happening. And being able, you know, to see the whole spectrum of a phenomenon, it's arising... It's existing, and then it is ceasing its ending. And then, you know, if the mind really clearly sees that it starts to turn away. Not in a way like, oh, you know, you are bad or something like this, but it just turns away because it sees, well, you know, in that way I won't find what I'm looking for. It's more that kind of turning away. And then, you know, the response is just to let go. And it's easy to let go because it's, it's coming from inside, from seeing clearly, not from suppression or forcing or, you know, trying to manipulate the mind, but it's coming from inside, from inside because the mind is really informed, you know, about the way things are. And the word informed, you know, it has seen what's happening and then it it adapts. It adjusts its own, you know, way of relating. and, uh, you know, by really deeply recognizing yeah, it's all part of nature. And, uh, and, you know, and this cannot happen through forcing, but it's, uh, it's the opposite of force. It's, it's all about letting go. You know, we are not wrestling something into the ground, you know, and taking something which we don't have, but it's, it's much more a letting go of filters, emotional and cognitive filters, you know, which are not in accordance with reality, but which are a result of conditioning. And uh, it's a process, you know, which has its own intelligence, and in the scriptures there are some really good examples have, which I'd like to share with you, showing about, you know, it's very important also to not have unreasonable expectations. And the Buddha compares it like with a hen, you know, sitting on her eggs. She just needs to sit on her eggs and make sure, you know, they're all like under her, and then it's it's not up to her how long it takes, you know, till the chicks comes out. They it will happen. If she the constantly is looking, you know, it's it's not <laughs> it's not working. She's the eggs will not really get what they need, you know. Or a carpenter's aids which he's using over many, many years and then, you know, after a few years one can see like the finger prints and one can see the handle is worn out, and he doesn't exactly know, you know, when did it happen, but he can see, you know, there is change happening, slow change, or sometimes also compared with the gradual deepening of the ocean. So it's really important to not have uh, unreasonable expectations and notice small changes. You know, and then we are looking back and say, oh, the last few months this salt didn't come up or something like that. It's, it's not about, you know, pressurizing or, you know, pulling at the petals so that the flower will quicker blossom. That doesn't really work. But it is, it is really like a, a blossoming which needs, you know, all of the... Our job is to uh, make sure, you know, that there's the right conditions. And and the blossoming is not our business. You know, the blossoming will happen by itself. And uh, for us it's important to set the right conditions into place and for example, you know, the, the precepts are a good soil and then, you know, the refugees give us a, a clear kind of direction. And then, wise friends are very good influence. And uh, then, you know, we have to trust in the process. And, you know, you're always coming back to the middle when we you know notice the mind is attaching to one extreme or another coming back to the middle and allowing the stream of the dhamma you know to carry us and you know can be very uncomfortable the process can be you know very uncertain and that's totally necessary for transformation to take place you know to, we cannot stay in our comfort zone and at the same time uh, expect that these changes are going to happen we need to be able to you know step out of our comfort zone and uh, open up to be changed by by this practice you know being being fully with that process and not giving in, you know, needing to be somewhere else. Even the mind is kind of, you know, coming up with lots of kind of ideas how we could escape the uncertainty, or the unpleasantness of the transformation process. And we can just listen to that and say, okay, with kindness, you know, because that's also part of the practice is to uh, allow all of this... Um, thoughts and, and concerns and so on to be liberated. And that needs also a lot of kindness and a lot of space. And the Brahma Viharas are very good support for the practice. The warm practices the Brahma Viharas and the more cool practices, the inside practices. They work together and uh, you know getting the mind into the right balance so that it can pay attention and be with our experience and then at the same time also, you know, opening to shift into new ways of seeing and uh, having a a bigger perspective on our own experience and, you know, being able to see the, the connection between things, to see the conditionality and through seeing that, you know, opening up a greater context for our life and a deeper context. And then, you know, that will enable us also to be of better service to others. And uh, through that, you know, that gives us then another kind of um, uplift, you know, which can help us to open the mind even wider. I'm going to share one more time that poem uh, The Reimagination because I find it very um, pragmatic and uh, to the point really. Nantutara. Greatest joy. I spent most of my teenage years running from one bed to another. Any sign of warmth would do. Each worked for a while until they got possessive or mean or boring, or I did. Then I got new friends, shaved my head, and started eating once a day. During the long, lonely nights that followed, I would remember all the nice warm baths, all the late nights and long mornings, waking up next to beautiful warm bodies. One night, shivering on the ground, I started to cry, it's not fair, no matter what I do, the other thing always looks better. Listen my heart, I know how exhausting it all gets, don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. So, that's um, my little Tama talk for tonight. And I hope, you know, you don't give up until you are ready to give up for real too. (laughs) because that's the way it works. Then we see you again tomorrow at um, six o'clock.